Welcome and thanks for listening to the Spirit of Time podcast. It's a spirited discussion of watch topics and some of the cool bon vivant stuff that overlaps our hobby, especially fine spirits, craft beer, cocktails, and wine. In other words, if it's boozy, smoky, sudsy, or smooth, we'll probably talk about it. Think of it as a watch-focused happy hour for your commute. We are your hosts. I am Matt. I'm Greg. Thanks for listening and enjoy the episode. Hello and welcome to episode 52 of the Zulu Time podcast with your host Dan from at Timely Underscore Moments. So guys, um, I have managed to finally get another uh, collaborative uh, episode for you. Uh, effectively, this is a joint episode between myself and Matt and Greg over at the Spirit of Time podcast. Um, you would hopefully because you follow everything about the Zulu Time podcast, because, you know, why wouldn't you? Uh, you would have caught the episode where me and Matt caught up on their channel um, a few months ago, um, or coming up about a month, month or so ago. Um, and I thought it was only right and fitting that before the end of the year that I brought Matt and Greg on um, to be hosted by myself this time. Um, the episode is going to consist of a quick rundown on 2021, uh, watches within both of their collections, um, and then obviously watches that we like that have been released over the year um and we'll also get into a little bit more festive cheer and we're going to give out some christmas gift suggestions if you are panicking about christmas and you've only just realized it's around the corner like myself because i've been busy um and leaning a little bit more into the theme of the spirit of time podcast we're also going to come up with some festive drink suggestions so without further ado matt greg welcome to the show and thank you guys for giving up your afternoon and coming on and allowing me to record with you well thanks for having us dan it's good to see you again sorry greg i just stepped on you no it's a pleasure to be here i missed out on the last conversation um that the two of you had of course i, I listened to it and, and enjoyed it and made sure everybody else listened to it so i i, I vowed to be on the next one and, and here i am yeah, well, it's good to finally yeah, get you on here as well, Greg. And yeah, Matt, it's good to see you again. Um, so as every watch podcast, you know, has a, has a running theme, um, I feel we need to hit off the most obvious one that is shared across all of our podcasts, which is the wrist check. So as my guests today, do you guys want to go first and let me know what you've got on your wrist and what? Sure. Well, Dan, today I am, uh, it is not Tuesday, but I am wearing a Speedmaster so I've got the um, Speedmaster Professional. This is a birth year watch for me. This is the reference 145.02271. So this is this watch is 50 years old like me. Um, I am, I don't know if you can see this, but I am wearing it on like a, a sage green, very kind of issue mil spec looking uh, 20 millimeter NATO. And yeah, just uh, really like this watch. It just goes with everything. And yeah, what what more can you say about a Speedmaster? It's just one of the classics. It looks great. And um, every time I see a Speedmaster, um, be it on a Tuesday or not on a Tuesday, it makes me want to go and buy one. Um, in fact, a few weeks ago, I may have stumbled into a Amiga boutique just to try on the new um, coaxial versions, just to have a look. Um, I was very tempted. 
Um, and it didn't help that it was Black Friday weekend. So, you know, they were offering a massive discount for those who just happened to walk in that store. So, and of it's course, a- you had money burning in your pocket. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was one of those where I was just like, oh, you shouldn't have told me that. And I, I, I had to refrain. I had to refrain, unfortunately. On my wrist, uh, I think it was also influenced just by our, our overall, um, you know, aesthetic today between the pods. I, I'm wearing olive drab. And every time I wear this sweater, I, I always seem to put on my Oris um, uh, big, uh, big crown uh, uh, pointer date in bronze with the uh, olive green dial. And uh, I've got it on this B&R Bands brown suede strap. And it's just, um, just really works. And so... Um, just felt very fitting today. And, uh, and, um, it's, you know, the patina is coming along nicely. It's about probably a year old at this point. And so it's, uh, I'm going to go back through, hopefully if I have some time and, and do a series of, uh, kind of photo check-ins on on the progression Mm. of, of how it's turned. Nice. Nice. I've, um, I've not really had a lot of experience with Oris. I've only seen them on and off at a couple of events. So um, the World Time UK event, which you guys should have heard of, um, I mentioned it in my my last episode with James, Um, they always turn up with a stall and it's always good to see, but I've never owned an Oris. Um, Are you going to leave the patina as it is? Or are you going to, are you the kind of person that will clean it after a while and then let it re-patina as it were? I don't think I'll clean it. I, it doesn't get to the point. I don't think I don't wear it enough and I don't take mm. it into certain circumstances where it's going to end up like, uh, you know, green and, and crusty. Mm. If it did, I might, I might think a little differently. So I think I'll let it go. Um, but I was funny. We were at a Seiko event the other night, Matt and I were, and somebody was looking at the IWC, um, uh, the bronze, the uh, chrono, the Spitfire. Yeah, in bronze. And uh, they were asking kind of a similar question. Oh, I just don't know how you feel about bronze. I said, well, you can reset it if you want. And I, I think you have the option to do that. Yeah. Right. So, um, but I think I'll let it roll. Oh, that's cool. That's cool. Um, to you guys, um, you would have heard of him because I've interviewed him multiple times on the podcast and he's interviewed me multiple times as well as uh, AJ Barce over at the Bellingham podcast. He's got a Baltic um, in bronze and his, he did like a COVID blog. So he basically wore it pretty much every day for a year. Um, and his, the way, just the weather and what he's been doing with it, his patina in such a way that it looks DLC. Um, it's really interesting. Uh, it's quite cool. Yeah, it is very cool. I actually just came across him not very long ago, probably because of you, and uh, started listening to his pod. And I think he did a really neat episode on, uh, on a gentleman who, who's collecting and, and harvesting um, kelp uh, yes. off the coast of Ireland, right? It was really yeah. interesting. Graham over at Peninsula Kelp, he's a really good bloke. And actually he ties in nicely with my, my wrist check, which we'll get onto in a second. But if you do like AJ's work, and I encourage anyone who's still listening who doesn't already follow the Bellingham podcast, go follow it. Um, but he has done a two mini series called The Analog Explorer, which talks about stuff like watchmaking and the world of that, because he is a big uh, watch geek so yeah check that out specifically if you want the watches or the bellingham podcast if you like the more outdoors the lifestyle the technology side of the, of the podcast as well i haven't listened to his pod in a while but i did i have i've kind of fallen away from it i'll have to kind of swing back through i also found him through you dan but quite some nice. time ago i mean years ago but how mm. funny is it that he's talking about graham and peninsula kelp company mm. because i that that made like my list of semi-final kind of thing is gift nice. recommendations today. And I, I actually featured, I don't know if you saw that, Greg, but 
the um, two or three, maybe four posts ago when I did my food related posts. And I talked about, you know, like seasoning the potatoes on the grill and for Dan, for your listeners, they're going to be like, oh, who is this guy? What is he talking about? On my feed, I, I will post a lot of like food and, and beer content. And I recommend his spice blend. It's really, really good. He's got a sea salt um, kind of chili flakes and the sea greens in there. And I had him send that over from Ireland. Super cool guy too. Super cool. Yeah, guy. I would, he is a very cool guy. I would love to find out what his background is. I have a feeling somewhere, you know, in his past life, I think he was a Marine or he was a, a, a swabby of some kind. He just has that air uh, about him. I'll, uh, I, I can give you a, a very short um, down low um, after recording. Sure. So yeah, but as you know, he's a diver effectively now. Um, in terms of my wrist check, um, I've got one of my, effectively one of the watches which we're going to talk about that came into my collection in 2021. Um, it's my Elliott Brown Canford, which you guys can see there. Uh, this watch is particularly special because this is a yet another special project. Um, as you know, Matt, um, and obviously Greg, if you're not already aware, and you, I know Matt would have probably briefed you, a lot of my collection is to do with special projects, military watches um, or a combination of two so this is my latest special project which i conducted with elliot brown um, and it basically commemorates the 80th year of the formation of the intelligence corps within the british army um, and as i was the project leader um, i've got number one which is always cool so um, fantastic company if you haven't already had a look at them elliot brown are really good a lot of my followers um are owners of Elliot Brown or at least followers of Elliot Brown and, and what they do. Um, but they are a effectively ex military slash extreme sports kind of everyday, every situation kind of watch. Um, they developed um, themselves out of the company called Animal Surfing, which you probably would have heard of being in California. So Animal Surfwear um, and all that kind of stuff. And obviously they had a watch department um, and then um, through the testing of all those watches for extreme sports, um, Ian and Alex, who obviously founded Animal, decided to um, effectively park Animal. Um, and then they had a bit of a break and then they came back and just went, actually, we want to keep making watches, um, but to do what we want. Whereas obviously, and, and they've done a really, they've done quite a few good interviews about why they effectively parked Animal for watches and went into Elliot Brown. Um, but that's, their ethos and what, what they, they've done. Um, they're all based down in Dorset on the South Coast, and a lot of their watches take uh, influence from the kind of activities and the uh, environment that is the Dorset Coast, effectively, which is really cool. Um, right in terms of how that links in with Graham, uh, Graham's obviously a Elliot Brown ambassador, and he wears one of their watches. So I didn't know that, but I have seen, I think, one of their more uh, recent, and I, I Oh, I'm going to maybe test my memory because I just know him by his handle, Commando Sundials. I think his name yes. is Andy. Is It's Andy, right? Is it Andy? It adds, adds. Adds. Okay, thank you. Yeah. Sorry, buddy. Um, but yeah, the one that he's worn recently looks really cool. It's got like yeah. a real kind of Zen vibe, um, very, you know, mill adjacent. And I could definitely see myself wearing that watch. Super cool. So that's yeah. your, your project completed then. That's good. Yeah, news. my project is completed. And 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 a final note on that, which is really nice, is the fact that with every Elliot Brown project, uh, special project, be that the ones that you can buy civilian market, um, all the military and the special ones, 
um, there is a percentage of that money that always goes to a agreed upon charity. So for myself, uh, it went to my core association effectively. So we effectively gave money towards the association that supports veterans and those who serve and all that kind of stuff to, to better them, which is good. Um, but yes, ADS is one, obviously it was the commando forces, one of the Royal Marines project. Um, and the model of that watch is actually the, um, well, the original model, the DLC version of that of that watch, the Holton is actually the issued British military dive watch to our special forces now. Cool. So yeah, there you go, ties it back into the military. Um, before we talk about Bremont, because I know that you're desperate to talk about Bremont, Matt, because obviously I actually rang you on, on the night of the, uh, the, the release. Um, I feel that we need to do your uh, podcast's kind of tradition, which is a poor check. So what are you drinking? Me? Oh, okay. No, I'm kidding. I'm, I'm pointing, uh, pointing to Brett. <laughs> We're like Rochambeauing here. All the uh, sound gosh. effects and everything. Yeah, did you like that, guys? Yeah, yeah. that was good. <laughs> uh, so I'm on good authority by a friend of ours who, who um, some folks might follow, uh, Beer and Watches. It's Beer and Watches. Mm -hmm. uh, that this Trader Joe's, and, and, and I don't know, you know, obviously this is probably a little bit, you know, more specific to uh, folks in the States, I suppose. But this Trader Joe's 2021 Vintage Spiced Ale. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to see it well here. Um, it's a dark ale uh, with spices, 9% alcohol. Um, and it comes in a big 750 and, uh, I've heard it's really fantastic. It's a good bargain. It's like six bucks at the Trader Joe's. And, uh, that's what I'm going to pour and enjoy today while we're talking. Yes. I've had that before in years past. Um, it is a good beer. I think you'll like it. So while you're pouring that I have, a, yeah, it's always hard with the, the camera, but, uh, in sort of in honor of being on a, a British podcast, right? I got the uh, the Samuel Smith. This is the oatmeal stout. And so we kind of went, both of us, I think, in the same sort of theme. But, you know, dark beer, I got this in a pint glass. This is just a gorgeous classic, you know, oatmeal stout. Very smooth, kind of uh, low on the carb, which is to say the carbonation. I'm sure it's actually very high carb <laughs> in terms of carbs. But um, yeah, this is definitely easier on the ABV than yours, Greg. But uh, yeah, this is a, a great British pour and I love this one. If I manage to get through it before the end of the pod, I've got the Samuel Smith uh, India Ale on tap. So that'll be next up. We'll see. I have no, to say... I have to say that I talked to Matt yesterday on the telephone and he was, he was running in to grab <laughs> a few beverages and I have to really applaud him for going all the way, you know, and staying true to the theme and on brand. Very well done. Well, I discovered to my um, great lament because I bought the two types of beers, right? I got the oatmeal stout and the, the India ale and I was hoping to do a black and tan out of it. And I guess the deal is, right, the specific gravities are not different enough. So it, it wants to blend, even though I've got one of those flat spoons that you pour over. I made one of those. Eh, didn't quite work. So we're just, uh, we're sticking with the dark stuff and we'll, we'll call it a day, call it a podcast. It's a nice yes. evening and this is, this is good in a winter evening. So anyhow, that's our pour check. Nice. Uh, I'll have to try those out, actually, because I, I'm a spirits fan. So I, I tend to drink rum or whiskey um, and the beers and lugs and ales I've drank um, 
I can kind of take them or leave them. But I think that's mainly because I've not really explored many, should we say. But yeah, I'll definitely have a go at those. Um, I am fortunate in drinking a very boring cup of tea because for me, it's late here. Um, but I've got it in a really cool flask. So that makes up for it. So, so there you go. Easily. Easily. Right. Does, so so um, the Bramont event, Matt. So what do you want to know, man? Because I know you're, you were... You did message me uh, at the end of the night, and I believe it was literally as we were leaving um, because we were stood in the foyer of the Greenwich National Maritime Museum at the time, uh, waiting for our Uber. Um, so those who don't know, I went to the event as a project leader, because I'm also a project leader with Bron, um, with another project leader and a friend and guest of the podcast, uh, Mark over at Jana Watch. So he's also a project leader and that's basically why we went. Um, and yeah, the event was held in the Greenwich National Maritime Museum, which is overlooked um, by the Royal Observatory and the latest release being the Bramont Longitude takes cues from the, basically um, the observatory and the, uh, the journey, I suppose, that was finding longitude back in back in the uh, uh, what seventeen hundreds. Um, so the design cues include stuff like the time ball, um, which is on top of the Greenwich Observatory, which I didn't realise until I went there. Actually, it was quite bad for A being British and B being you know a watch geek. Was that that ball? travels up the spire and then at one o'clock it drops and what that was was it was a signal because obviously Greenwich Hill is quite high by default being a hill um, and back in the day uh, when uh, all the shipping vessels and stuff used to go up and down the Thames um, ships would be able to set their chronometers on board the ships by that ball so they would if they were in sight of Greenwich at one o'clock they knew that at one o'clock they would drop and they would see it drop and they would be able to set their their um, their clocks to it um the other nice little touch on there is actually in the relief of the dial which is engraved effectively there's like um a grid you know it's like a a, a line diagram effectively of the of the glow um and on there is obviously effectively um lines to denote different time zones as you go around the world and obviously the central one is red meaning to denote obviously Greenwich Mean Time, which is quite nice. Um, but that's the aesthetic side of it. But actually, I think the most important bit about the watch was the fact that it has the beginning of, you know, their in-house movement. And, you know, a lot of people, you know, obviously kind of looked at it with a bit of, I guess, anticipation, maybe a bit of negativity, maybe a bit of, you know, um, I guess, pessimism to an extent for those who aren't, you know, big Bramont fans and me and Matt, we've discussed this before um, on and off your show about, you know, people's views on Bramont um, and whether it's positive or negative or, you know, whatever. But like, I think the, you know, where they're going with this, I think is quite impressive. Now, whether, you know, you believe that it's necessarily the correct way to go about this or whatever, you know, put that aside, you know, they've brought in a new in-house movement effectively um, or a movement that they, you know, they have the ability to manufacture that gives them the ability to build upon in order to, you know, eventually, you know, on mass put into all of their watches, which is ultimately what they've wanted to do since the year dot. So, you know, to be a part of their journey, I think, as you know, I said, I've really been around the brand since about 2016 and see them go from, you know, 
handling on Thames to move to a different place to you know com- uh, collaborating with other British and other you know world-renowned engineering companies and all that kind of stuff to start building watches back in Britain at on scale I think it's great you know what I mean so that's kind of my take on it the event was really cool um as all Bremont events are really cool they're all quite fun um so there's always that serious bit where you know people turn up and there's obviously you know the watch is being shown there's a little bit of a presentation from the from the two brothers and then it then turns into effectively drinks <laughs> and live music and you get to hands on with the watches and you get to you know see the other bits that they bring in there and each event has been that I've been to has never been at the same place and it's also never had you know the same vibe you know you get similar faces be the brand ambassadors there and all that kind of stuff um and different guests um but on the whole you know it's always a fun-filled environment it's always a unique venue and obviously you're always looking at watches which are nine times out of ten completely unique to Bremont whether you like the aesthetic or not so that's the other point like just because I'm a Bremont uh, Bremont fan doesn't actually mean that I like every single one of their watches but what's nice is I think is that you can see their DNA in their design signs across every single line so so i've got questions um one did while you were at this event because i had not it makes perfect sense the idea right any ship at anchor you know back in the day if you're within sight of you know the hill you can watch that ball drop did they did anybody say anything about whether or not i'm sure you are probably aware of this but you know in the united states there's this tradition of right the big red ball right in times square Mm mm-hmm you know, dropping on New Year's, it seems like yeah. that's, that's presumably we stole that from you. I don't know. But um, did they say anything about that? Or is that they the- didn't mention that at all? Um, but I can see where you draw, uh, where you draw the yeah, the parallels for that. Yeah. You know, um, it really wouldn't surprise me if that's actually wh- where that came from or originated. Um, yeah. Like I said, it sounds quite, quite, you know, ignorant to, uh, to it. But I genuinely didn't realize that ball dropped until I went there. So yeah, we'll, I- we'll put- We'll put the spirit of time fact checkers on that. We have a very yeah. large staff. <laughs> yep, yep. The other thing I'd want to know, I, I mean, there's really two questions that I have. Well, three really, but the the one I should ask last is the one I'll ask now because I think Greg can yeah. kind of relate to this. So I mentioned it before we started recording. I think, Greg, I don't want to speak for you because I'm pretty sure you said that this was true, but you just watched 14 Peaks, right? Yeah, probably <clears throat> three or four days ago. And same. So I also just watched it. So Dan, did you get to meet Nims? He was not there. Okay. He was not there. I've met Nims before though. I've met Nims uh, three times, I believe, off the top of my head at other Bremont events. Um, What's quite cool is I actually did Nims's first presentation when he got back after Project Possible, which was also, oddly enough, clearly a a Bremont event. Um, And he literally got off the mountain cleared his kit, got onto a jet, flown back to UK and was presenting within, I think, four hours of landing. He was absolutely hanging out of his hoop. Um, but still really, really positive. Always a polite guy. You know, I think my experience of uh, Nepalese soldiers and Gurkhas, um, they're always cut from the same cloth. I've never, you know, had a bad experience with one. Um, and they, uh, yeah, always just genuinely very cheerful and happy to give up their time um but he's obviously just a completely new level you know and his speech and his presentation on just some of the stuff that happened on the expedition were just insane 
Um, and obviously at the time, we didn't realise that there was going to be a documentary. We just thought it was going to be that presentation and that was it. So, so yeah, unfortunately he wasn't there. Um, and that's actually a point very quickly to raise was the fact that I think that the Bramont event itself, well, the other reason it was quite well received on my end for or, and other people when we obviously went there and spoke to them was the fact that it was probably one of the first larger watch events to happen in UK after the restrictions kind of lifted so people were happy to be there people were quite comfortable in in how it was managed and it was managed very well um you know and i think that was also another you know aid to that event you know in in how well it was received um someone that did meet actually there which was quite surprising i didn't think he was going to be there was adam craniotis got to meet him which was quite cool uh uh he invited us out for drinks and i believe that the response someone said was that he wouldn't be able to keep up with the Brits or he said that he's tried to keep up with Brits drinking and he failed miserably or something like that. It was something like that. It was quite amusing. Um, but he was there and, he, yeah, he was a nice guy to talk to. Um, I mean, obviously, there was a few other of their ambassadors there, but unfortunately, Nims wasn't. Maybe next time. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, you know, that's just, he's uh, topical right now, of course. I mean, it's an amazing mm-hmm. feat. Um, I couldn't help but notice, and I mean, as a military person, and Greg, I'm sorry, but I don't, you know, I, I'm the Bramont hooer, but uh, <laughs> the um, it seems like the one of the sort of the subtext in the documentary is, at least in, in various points, is how other climbers or people in that climbing community viewed NIMS, you know, and is he, you know, he's in the climbing thing, doesn't seem particularly humble. He doesn't seem particularly mm. soft-spoken, but I, you know, I wonder if people think he's a climber. He's not a climber. I don't, I, he's not, a climber, right. He's a face shooter. Yeah. yeah that's, that's the thing, yeah. isn't it? You know, he's, yeah, he's a combat swimmer who climbs. He's yeah. Like he's taken, he's been effectively, he's, you know, he's been forged for want of a better expression in the special forces, you know, and I don't know what your knowledge is of the, the Gurkhas or the, you know, in terms of the brigade of Gurkhas itself and how that works, but it, there's only a finite amount of places mm-hmm. uh, in the Brigade of Gurkhas every year. Uh, they're all highly sought after. Um, and I believe normally it's 250 to 300 places a year. Um, so, you know, boys effectively um, all compete um, across a very arduous selection just to join the British Army. Um, when they get there, you know, and when they pass, there's obviously a big ceremonial thing to it as well. It's obviously a great honour. They all come across to Britain. They go to, um, I believe off the top of my head, they go to Catrick, to the Gurkha training company. And they'll, they'll do the whole infantry course, effectively, um, together to keep, obviously, A, a bit of their tradition. Obviously, you know, they are, you know, effectively, you know, Commonwealth soldiers, for want of a better expression. Um, some of them, would, for the majority of them, would never have left Nepal before coming across to Brigada Gurkhas. And then... Um, going off stuff like their physical um, attributes in terms of their performance, their academic stuff as well. And I guess loosely some of their preferences, they are then streamed into different cat badges. So it's quite obviously, you know, it's just very competitive from day one. Um, So he's always been like that, you know, and then he would have gone into, you know, you saw that in the documentary, he was in the Gurkha rifles, which is the infantry, you know, he would have done, 
X amount of time in the infantry, as he mentioned very loosely. You know, and I like about the documentary, he didn't focus too much on his special forces and his army side. It just kind of said, yeah, I joined the army and it made me who I am. And that gave me that mentality, mentality in the training for me to go off and do what I wanted to do. Um, I like that, that they didn't focus too much on that. I think if you wanted to do a documentary on that, you know, there's a lot of documentaries on the Brigade of Gurkhas. There's a lot of documentaries, isn't there, already on the special forces. We don't need another one. Sure. Um, but you're right. He's not a mountaineer in terms of, that's what he wanted to do forever. You know, he's not an extreme athlete in that regard, but people I think were probably surprised actually that even though he's not put himself into, you know, Olympian kind of levels of sports, he actually probably shares a lot of attributes in terms of his mentality with those kind of people as well, you know, in just terms of the dedication and drive and the ambition to do it. You know, I think that's quite interesting. Yeah. Uh, but you're right. You know, he's not a mount in in terms of like his his mentality. He's he's not a mountaineer, really. Yeah, somebody, I, I, as somebody as somebody who's not like burdened with like, and I say this, you know, with with deference. But as someone who's not burdened with like, oh, I follow mountaineering closely. Yeah, this is what a this is what an expedition, you know, or a climber should look like. Um, I just found it refreshing. I just thought he was an amazing personality and somebody <clears> that you absolutely have to like respect and. And actually, quite frankly, he was super entertaining and somebody I would love to have a drink with and have a chat with. So I, I was completely unburdened by like, hey, this is what somebody who climbs mountains is supposed to look like. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, he, totally. yeah. Which which I, I should say, which actually, I'm sorry, that I should say also dismisses what he was do, what I gather from the documentary, why it was important that he himself did what he was doing. I'm not saying it's not important that he did that what he did looking like who he is and where he came from was not important. That's super, super important. Mm. All I'm saying is I wasn't burdened with like, this is what, you know, he's not, he doesn't fit the mold. Mm. Yeah. He's not what you stereotypically think, which is quite interesting. Yeah. He's a, um, a larger than life kind of character though. That's for sure. What well, Dan, I, I have one other question. I don't know yeah. that you'll know this, but maybe you've got some inside scoop or whatever, but the real question I have, I mean, I think the, the manufacturer, and I'm careful to use that term and not in-house or whatever, Vermont seems like they've been very, very like bending over backwards to be super mm. transparent about this to their credit. Um, Cause certainly not everybody else is, but where do you think this um, manufacturer movement is going to make its first appearance in their core line of watches? So, you know, this, the longitude is great. I yeah. think it's a really cool watch, but I mean, that's going to come and go. And that's not like for yeah. people like me and Greg, that's not in our wheelhouse, but yeah. um, you know, and that's one of their, you know, special, special purpose LEs that fund mm. certain things. I wonder where it's going to go. Do you think it's going to be Martin Baker or Supermarine or a different watch? Or what do you think? So the way I looked at it, and also I, I can't remember, you'll have to go back onto my obviously episode with James over at Just Two Ticks, because obviously we discussed it as well. And he mentioned um, one of the watch blogs that talks about watch movements. Is it Riscatement or something like that? Anyway, um, and the, the guy basically just looks at the whole process. And obviously, even in the Hidinki, um articles and the other main watch blog articles that talked about the movement you know at time of release it was interesting that obviously you know that base caliber has the ability to put 18 different uh, complications onto it you know and that's why they've done it effectively because it's the same base trade isn't it and base plate that they can just stick modulated bits on top of it so if you think about it in that regard the longitude would already have had special 
modules or layers effectively put onto it to enable the time ball bit and all the other bits on there that made it special, you know, for that design, the big date and all that. I think if I was a betting man, it's going to go initially into the men's or what they consider the men's to set of 43 millimeter three hand watches with a date. Now I'm quite, that's kind of quite broad because a lot of their watches are considered three hand watches with a date, you know, but at the end of the day, I think that's where they started, isn't it? They started with the Solos, they started with the Bremont, uh, the MBs, the U2 line and the Supermarine. And all of those watches historically are three hand sports, steel, uh, steel, stainless steel sports watches with a date. So is it going to be specifically to one of the lines or are they just going to start just throwing it into all of them because they can? I like to think that it will probably go into the MB first because that is, I would say that's the, the pinnacle of the three hand sports watches or the sports watches that you think of Bremont. You know, that they are is the that is the watch that effectively is on all of their marketing, whether you like it or not. Um, but I could just easily see it if they got to the volume and capacity where they want to, or, you know, at least they, you know, we assume that they're projecting to, I could easily seeing it drop straight into all of their 43 millimeter sports watches at the same time. And they just say, look, from this day, actually, production is going to slow down a little bit, but actually from this day, you can have these, you know? Um, but then I think the other thing they could do, which if you think about it, is, you know, when they released on their website where you could build your own MB? The configurator, yeah. The configurator. Maybe because of the volume, say, you know, again, I'm not a watch, you know, I'm not an owner of a watch company, but I would maybe toy with the idea and say, well, actually, you know what? We can build them to a certain capacity, but actually we still want to be approachable from those who don't care about in-house let's just stick it in the configurator and say well actually if you want an in-house movement you can pay for it on the in-house version and you can build your own and that would be a way to appease everyone who likes Bramont with in-house likes Bramont without in-house wants a Swiss movement wants a British movement wants it in an MB wants it in something else and you know what, that way, everyone's pretty much happy. They'll get the Bromont that they want, you know, because at the end of the day, as we've discussed, and we've discussed this a lot at, at length, I'm quite passionate about it. It's interesting, isn't it, to see how much scrutiny Bromont come under when it comes to certain releases. And I think that would be a way to keep everyone happy, wouldn't it? That's an interesting idea. I mean, we've talked about the scrutiny on our pod before. Well, I, we'll have to see. Hopefully we'll find well, out in yeah. the next year or so. Yeah. You know, um, but either way, I think it's the watch is lovely. It's not in my my wheelhouse either because I don't go to many dressy occasions to warrant a rose gold um, watch, as it were, or platinum watch. Or you know, it's a precious metal watch. Um, I love the reasoning why they did it, and I think what I liked about it was that it was the tenth LE, and they brought it right back to effectively the beginnings of British watchmaking. You know, in terms of the historicity. You know, um, but I'm just, yeah, I'm interested to see where this movement journey will now continue to go. So, Right on. Can I give you my two cents? Can I give you my two cents on um, yeah. on the movement piece? And yeah, I, of course. I, I figure you guys might appreciate this because I know you guys are really passionate about the brand. But, um, you know, if 
in the instance that the <clears throat> desire to develop the in-house movement is to fulfill that, that sort of uh, uh, dream to bring back large scale, you know, mm -hmm. movement making to, to Britain, that's really cool to me. And that mm -hmm. means so much more than a brand wanting to develop an in-house caliber to say that we have an in-house caliber. Mm -hmm. Matt and I've been talking about this and a lot of people too, to have an in-house, you know, movement is not better than to not, but somehow, mm -hmm. you know, over years and years of conditioning, we've, we've all been for a while there. I think we were all, you know, thinking that that in-house rules everything. Um, but so for, to hear that that's the goal and that's why they've been always wanting to do it. That resonates much more yeah. than XYZ brand saying, Hey, look, we've got in-house now. And, and in order to cover the R and D, you know, here's, here comes the price yeah. increase. And, and by the way, all the service has to come back to us. So anyway, yeah. that's just my thoughts on it. Yeah, no, I, I like that as well. I think, I think their motivators are more unique. Like you said, instead of just doing it because they can, you know, there's, there's, there's a different motivator. Um, and actually the last time there was an in-house British made movement on mass production. It was in the 1970s with Smiths. So, you know, and those those were also quite cool watches, you know, subsequently. But you know, yep, that's yep. another podcast. Um, so in terms of 2021, guys, um, has there been any movement within your own personal collections? And obviously, if there hasn't been any movement, is there any releases that you particularly, you know, fo uh, liked that or followed or, you know, wouldn't mind, you know, maybe getting your hands on in 2022? You know, I, I didn't add anything in, in 2021. I've been keeping the, um, the powder dry. And um, but there's a few things that, that did speak to me and that I definitely paid really close attention to. The first one I was going to highlight <clears throat> I actually have three different price points, if that's okay with you guys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Get your reactions, see what you guys think about all of these. First one was, um, I loved how they did the, um, the Ham Hamilton um, khaki mechanical and bronze. Seems like mm -hmm. another evolution of just an absolute, you know, steadfast uh, part of the, you know, watch community. I mean, everybody loves the khaki mechanical for good reason. Um, and they continue to introduce, you know, cool colorways. Bronze has been a hit now for a number of years. And again, it's just affordable for what it is. And it looks super handsome. And I think it was, I think, I think it looks great. I don't know. What do you guys think of that one? I, I like Hamilton. I think Hamilton are really cool. Um, you know, I think they're a great entry, you know I mean? Or, or accessible Swiss, accessible is better. Uh, accessible, accessible um, you know, uh, mechanical watch brand. Um, I like the history behind Hamilton. Um, I don't necessarily like bronze watches um, mm -hmm. because again, it goes back to it. Like, you know, for me, um, I just don't see the need and the aesthetic that I go for. And, and the, you know, the, the scenarios that I put myself into um, would never warrant a bronze watch. I can appreciate them, but I'd never own one. So, you know, I, I definitely prefer their stainless steel versions. Um, but I, I like the, the, the khaki mechanical line. Um, but I think as well, like, the other reason I like the khaki mechanical line is because I've owned an original. Like, so I've owned the original W10 watches. I'm not sure if you're aware of the W10 watches from the 70s, but effectively the hand-wound British issued watches, obviously, which the khaki mechanical effectively takes a little bit of inspiration from, you know, from that period, as well as the mechanical issued watches to the American forces at the same time. Um, so I think I like that bringing, yeah, the, the modernization and continuation of that aesthetic into an, an accessible watch. So that's what I like about Hamilton. I just wouldn't personally give it a bronze one. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, I like it aesthetics wise. I mean, they're they're good wearing watches, and I've mm. recommended them before. Um, the bronze to me, I can kind of take or leave. I've never mm. taken the plunge on bronze yet, and I eventually I think I will, mm. but I just haven't done it yet. But mm. what's your next? Next one is going to be probably outside of our wheelhouse in, in terms of who's on the you know on the on the pod today. But Matt and I did an episode where we broke down the release of this. There was 140 pieces each of three different color variants of a Grand Seiko to the North American market, uh, probably over the summer, I want to say. And they called it, again, this is all the, you know, Grand Seiko and Seiko nomenclature, the SBGW275. It was the 273, 275, and 277. The 275 was this sort of bright green, really beautiful um, 37 millimeter hand wound three, you know, three hand uh, dress watch uh, for better, lack of a better word, whatever you want to call Grand Seiko dress watch. just really beautiful textured dial and um, uh, pretty accessible again for what Grand Seiko is at, you know, I think they, they checked in at 4,900. Uh, I'm sure they were all spoken for the minute they were released. There was only 140 in each colorway. But uh, again, back to our, our friend Beer and Watches, he was able to snag one and I haven't seen it in person yet, but uh, that was a real, that was a real uh, stunner, I thought. Well, Greg, we were at that um, at the Seiko event. So, Dan, there was a an AD event two nights ago here in Los Angeles with Seiko with um, prospects. And yeah, I saw your at, photos actually. It looked good. Yeah, at Feldmar. Of, yeah, Feldmar Watch yeah. Company, and yeah. in conjunction with a blog to watch. So yeah, um, good. Iris Co. Doctor Yellow has the uh, the lighter dial, the lightest dial variant, and mm. that one was on wrist. Um, you know, the other night and it was the pistachio one. It looks good. It's not super saturated. So it was cool. I like mm. that watch. I, I, I need to kind of get on to looking at more Grand Seiko stuff. Cause I believe there's only one boutique in UK or one big one. Um, so Dan, I could see you, um, for what it is, obviously it's a few bucks, but uh, I could easily see you with what you do for a living, getting like mm. their their sort of Explorer 2-esque quartz GMT. Yeah, I've seen those. They look Super, good, super actually. accurate. Yeah. I, you know, um, that's a fantastic watch. I want to mm. say that um, Adrian Barker had like the first generation version of it. Yeah, he did, didn't he? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Did, he, did he have it on white? I believe he had it on white. I don't remember. I, th- I think he might've had the yellow one. But, oh, that um, was it. It was the yellow one because mm-hmm. it was more limited or something, wasn't it? If I remember right. That's exactly right. But that that would make a cool, you know, watch for somebody in the in the military. Anyhow, yeah, they look good. They look good. In fact, a friend of mine who is in the in in the British Army is uh, uh, saving up. That is his next watch is a Grand Seiko. He's determined to add a Grand Seiko um, on onto his collection, which is quite cool. That's awesome. The last, uh, the last one I had to offer up to you guys was um, a Breitling Chrono and not the one that Matt is going to think of because I already went with one green dialed watch. Mm. Um, Matt really, lo- I think he stopped into Feldmar, ironically, and loved um, uh, the Breitling Premier, I think is what they're called. Or no, the, the Premier Chronograph, the Her- Premier Heritage. But I like mm-hmm. the, uh, the Breitling, the new Detora uh, revivals that they released. It's a column wheel chrono, 42 millimeter, um, triple calendar moon phase. Uh, it's a little pricey, um, and there was a what they called a copper, and I think in a silver dial. But the copper is really like a almost a salmon, like a desaturated mm-hmm. salmon, really sharp. Um, but I, I highlighted it not so much for the watch itself, which I think is really beautiful, but to sort of applaud Breitling for this shift, where I thought for a few years maybe they drifted off 
into a time and place where maybe there was a lot of commercial success. And I don't really know if it really spoke to some of the enthusiasts and they seem to really be coming back to where people are appreciating them again. And those mm -hmm. were a few examples, I think of, of, uh, of, of ones that were really beautiful. And, you know, I think that that one clocks in at you know, almost 13,000 us. So it's not a cheap watch, but, um, but quite beautiful and, and definitely very vintage inspired. Yeah, they are very vintage inspired. I, 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 I also agree with you. I think it's interesting to see how the attitude towards Breitling is changed or at least changing. I think, you know, like you said, I think they did have a bit of a time where it was just let's collaborate with car companies and make them really big and shiny. Um, you know, and then they've kind of dialed that back and they've looked into, I guess, like you said, their archived models, as it were, to take design influence from it. Um, I like Breitling, personally. I think they're really cool. I think they're an underrated Swiss brand. I think actually when in terms of that, that luxury tier, I think people, like I said, I think they're a Marmite brand, aren't they? You either like them or you don't. Um, but I also find personally that I'm, I only like certain lines again, which is interesting. Um, so yeah, that's just my experience of Brightling, but I think they're quite cool. Yeah, same. I think there are, there are certain things that are always going to be good. You know, the, um, uh, the aerospace is always mm. going to be cool, right? Um, yeah. There's a you know a few others, you know, kind of core Breitling, but I I agree with both of you that they're that you know coming the wheel is turning around on them. Yeah. I tried the uh, the pistachio dialed. I think it's like mm -hmm. 30, 37 millimeter. It's yeah. just yeah. you know a three hand time. It might be might not even be time and date. It might just be time, but I think it's a time and date. And I think they still call it a chronomat, but it's the one with the, the real mm. bracelet, the real cool you know, bullet bracelet. And it's basically, it is a man's date just killer. Mm. You know, it is, it is so, so cool. So I, I like that one quite a bit and yeah, you know. Have you guys I, ever owned Brightlings? I have. I mm. did. Yeah. In fact, so maybe my first 10 years of watch enthusiasm was one or two sort of semi-serious watches. And then, you know, things like, um, you know, Victor Knox and Swiss army and quartz watches and stuff like that. And then I think probably around 2005 or six, maybe 2006 is when I sort of got my next, you know, like nice watch. And yeah, that was the, the Breitling Steelfish XL. So it's the mm -hmm. super ocean steel fish. Yeah. Um, that was a really well executed watch. And aside from the fact that it's just chunky, it's 44 millimeters. Mm. That's going to stand the test of time. Cause it had a really great looking like electric blue dial, kind of a radial, you know, concentric ring kind of a thing um, in terms of the uh, uh, pattern effect, really, really cool, like red script. Um, mm. And it was, a mix of you know shiny and matte surfaces so it wasn't like yeah. the bright bling yeah great watch um and i had that for a while and then that brought me into bremont in probably 2010 2011 and then from there it's been katie bar the door mm -hmm. yeah so yeah i i like them they've they've got a place yeah they definitely have a place i i, I own a bright thing actually it's a way for service not because I broke it or it's, it's broken. It's more because it's, it's time to have a service. I've owned it for a, for a while now. Um, and it was actually my first luxury watch. Um, mm -hmm. So I own a uh, Avenger 2 GMT, actually. Yeah. 
Um, and again, it's very similar to the, the steelfish and all that kind of stuff. I think those sports watchers are the cool ones, personally, like in my opinion. I think, like the Sierra Space or those, um, the Navitimers are also very cool. But like I said, they are, I would say, they're just a little bit delicate, you know, because they are, you know, they're definitely more of a heritage watch, aren't they? Um, but I definitely can appreciate them. Um, but yeah, I think the Avenger line is pretty cool. It's just a shame that um, the recent, so they re-released the GMT and they jumped the size up to 44 millimeters without the crown. But what I do like about the new version, which I will say I don't like about my version, is my one is fully, fully polished. Mm-hmm. So it's like that, it's like that era of Brightling where it was coming out of that blingy era. And it was still a fully polished case, fully polished bracelet. Um, the only thing that's not polished on my Avenger is the rider tabs at the cardinal points of the yep. bezel, um, which makes it stand out and makes it really look really cool. Um, but that's it. Like I can, you know, I wore it and I do when I said when it gets back, I wear it fairly often. Um, but I did find myself not wearing it as often just because it's so shiny and it just picks up scratches like any man's business which is obviously a problem um especially for the fact that it was a military special edition probably wasn't <laughs> ideal whereas they've dialed it back now you know the even though the avenger line has jumped up by a couple of mil you know on most of the the models that i've seen they've now gone back to just doing brush finishes and i really wish that um they had kept the avenger line at a brush finish because it it's just so much cooler well, I don't know, maybe take it to a, uh, you know, either a, a watchmaker you trust or, or somebody and have it, have it knocked down a little bit. Have it know, knocked down. Yeah, yeah. Some of the shine off of it. As far as mine, I mean, I, Greg said, I know he didn't get any watches. I got one watch this year mm-hmm. and um, I got the Seiko Presage Sharp Edge GMT, that sort nice. of that brown bronze copper mm-hmm. dial. Yeah. And Super cool watch. I mean, the one, I would say this on the plus side, the finishing is very good. The dial is really cool. Um, very well executed. It's, it's all these different colors, depending on kind of how the sun's hitting it. And it's a a true mechanical GMT, you know, in the sense that the watch nerds say true GMT. So it's a jumping local hour, um, you know, very cool like that. Um, and it's quite affordable. That's on the plus side. The the negatives I think are that the um, the lug architecture is a little clunky, and it's mm-hmm. one of the few Seiko sport watches that actually wears its size. Most Seiko mm-hmm. divers, you know, will wear anywhere from maybe two to three millimeters smaller than the size on paper. Mm-hmm. This this one is looks a little big, and when you put it on, it's a little big. Not, not crazy. You know, if you have a seven inch rest, it's going to be fine, but I'm a skinny guy. And, you know, for me, yeah. it's a little large, but it's a really cool watch. And I'm really, you know, glad about what it represents that mm-hmm. Seiko is willing to, you know, roll out a real GMT movement, yeah, so-called flyer GMT movement in a mechanical watch under two grand, well under two grand. Yeah. So yeah, that's really the only thing I added this year the, in terms of stuff that's out. It came out this year. There's literally too many things to talk about, but I think the the thing that stands out and, you know, I'll just lay it on the table and we don't have to talk about it. It's pretty self-evident, but the, excuse me, the um, S, oh, now I'm going to mess it up. Is it S301, S302, the GMT? S301, I believe. 
Yeah, I mean that's the that's the case in the design. Yeah, I just don't remember yeah. if they, they called it something different. But basically that 40 millimeter, you know, uh, uh yeah. yellow GMT hand or orange yellow, whatever color that is, um that's been tugging at my heartstrings and it doesn't help that a number of the people that I follow got them recently. So I'm like, oh god, yeah, yeah. you're seeing uh, it, you're seeing it a lot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I uh I've tried one on that and they are they are very nice <laughs> you're not helping dan i'm not helping i know i'm not helping this is the problem is i speak to loads of other watch guys and they're awesome. or you are helping maybe maybe it's actually we should look yeah. at the other side of it well, you are you, helping you were saying that you wanted a brummont back in the collection so so i will talk and about it, this it, offline but i've got okay. lines on two separate watches and they're nice. it's like they're same but different uh-huh. you know and uh we'll kind of see what happens or, okay. or if, if i can capitalize but basically one's a, a the three basically the the time and date 301 mm-hmm. and then the other is uh a a cool variation on the 43 43 millimeter supermarine yeah. oh, okay cool. yeah we'll, yeah, we'll talk about that later i don't want quick, yeah, yeah. this to be all that's, new, that's news to me you didn't you yeah, didn't clear yeah. that with me before pod <laughs> i didn't see that on the show notes that's yeah, well, that came up just in the past 24 hours. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> well, we'll, yeah, we'll have a discussion very quickly after, at the end. Um, so as you know, guys, my watch collection is quite extensive and I always kind of get stuff in. Um, but for me, the, the main one that's, that, that's come into the collection is obviously the yellow brown with, with, with the project and obviously super chuffed with how that went and the experience of being another project leader with a different brand. Um, but I've got two watches actually here to show you that are in the collection. Um, but then I've got one extra, which has been sent in for, for um, you know, I won't lie to you, you know, you guys now know that I'm obviously into photography, um, professionally, um, for, um, photography reasons. So, um, I'll start with that one and then I'll show you the two that I've managed to, uh, that came in effectively. Well, one came in in 2021, but there's another one here as well. So this is quite a cool release. This is the Timor ATP yeah. Heritage Field. So this is the second release from Timor. Um, their initial heritage field release obviously was uh, during the end of the first lockdown, effectively. Um, and it's the reiteration of the Timor Dirty Dozen watch was that one. And then the ATP, which takes its design from the Army Trade pattern or the army timepiece which was the original british army kind of line of watches that we that we utilized during the war um those those were um ordered in 1939 ish and um, there was actually more companies that made obviously then the dirty dozen obviously because that's clearly 12 i think there was like 17 or 18 companies um but there was a few iterations across each company as well so you can actually get i think out of all the combinations if you look at like case backs case materials and dial combinations and movement combinations i think there's like 22 versions of these watches um, and they all range from like 29 millimeters to 33 so they're very small and definitely considered either a ladies watch now or a dress watch uh, but this is a really cool piece um you know and, and this one that was sent in is actually the hand wound version and i think what's quite cool with this is that it they offer you the hand round version if you want to be more accurate to the originals um, or if you want to be more practical in terms of modern you know mechanical watchmaking you're not really bothered or you'll forget to wind your watch they also offer it in a, a fully automatic movement which is quite nice so that's a cool release which i wasn't expecting to come in and have some experience with 
Um, and I think it was quite cool is the fact that you don't see many white dark military reissues, you know. If I was going to say. Yeah. And, you know, it, I, it wears very well. It's 36-ish mil. Um, it's probably quite... a little bit bigger. It's a nice wearable piece. I would actually say, you know, this is a good contender for the Hamilton khaki mechanical line to be honest um uh, if you want that look especially if you want to a white dial watch you know it, effectively they they are the niche in the market if you wanted the atp issue you can only go to these guys at the moment you know um but yeah that's a cool release um i'm sure you've seen some of the photos that have gone on to the tiny moments page um but because of that um and what was quite nice about the fact that i got someone in for photography purposes is because I actually have an original to compare it to. So this one is a 1940s one. I got this a few years ago, but I thought I'd show you that because of the release. But you can see the size difference straight, straight away. Um, yeah. So yeah. I'm saying the other That's is cool. 30, like 32. It's I love that. 31, yeah, 31 mil. Um, but this one is, yeah, 31 mil. This was a chromed, brass chrome case. Um, so you can kind of see... It's kind of coming through on the edges. But yeah. actually, in terms of a watch that's 80 to 81 years old, condition on this is phenomenal. Uh, what I like about this one is the fact that my dial has gone like a champagne color. Um, and the all the loom plots and all the loom on the hand, the radiant paint, is all survived. It's all intact. So that tells me that obviously no moisture got inside the case. So I don't know where it went. Don't know what happened to it. All I know is that it was obviously clearly made at some point during the war. Um, and got through relatively all right to be fair um, i mean over over our video call it looks it looks stellar yeah for its yeah, age. yeah. Um, but that that brings me on to a watch that i picked up a couple of weeks ago which i'm going to show you so you obviously know that i'm a military watch fan um, and this is a watch that i've been hunting for for a while on and off just you know how you have that ebay search just you know picking away um, but i went to a vintage watch fair a couple of weeks ago in Birmingham, uh, it was like, it was advertised as the largest like vintage watch fair in UK. Um, I don't know whether that's true or not. Uh, it might be in terms of like amount of vendors, but in terms of physical size, definitely not. Um, but effectively there's like loads of vintage dealers ranging from everything from like guys who were selling uh, 1958 big crown Rolex Submariners box and papers for like 25 grand right down to pick up um, broken watches or just watch bits for like a tenner, like just grab it in a car boot sale kind of vibe. Um, and I basically was walking around and um, I found one of these hidden under a pile of watches that I initially thought it was broken. Um, I won't lie to you, I was really quite grateful for the fact that it's a sterile dial because it meant that the vendor didn't know what he had. All he knew was that it was loosely military, but this is a Vertex review or review caliber 57. So that is effectively a Vertex issued World War II ATP watch. And they're quite rare. It's, it's interesting because the, uh, the font is quite unique. And that's yeah, how yeah. the only one that I knew what it was and the crown's got this weird wide collar on it it's quite a unique crown yeah you can um, yeah you can tell it's got a different profile yeah yeah so i picked that up and for me that sits really well with my collection because i actually have a review pocket watch so i picked up a pocket watch a year or so ago um 
and I obviously have the Vertex reissued M100 and the MP45. So I now have two original Vertexes or what are considered Vertex watches um, that would have seen the war, whether they would have seen anything important in war action, as it were, um, I don't care. Um, but they would obviously have been manufactured for the war. Um, and then I've got the two reissues that sit very nicely with it as well. So that's like one of my kind of pertinent watches that has come into my collection, which I think is just a little bit of fun. Um, so yeah, that's what's come in. In terms of watching... That, that's super uh, cool, by the way. Congrats. Yeah. That's, a, that's a really Thanks, fun man. find. Yeah, it was. And, and you know what? Like, I think people are after these now. And we can have a quick discussion on this because you probably would have followed it a little bit. But, you know, and it's like when Instagram does that thing of you know, being that its own echo chamber across the watch fam as it were. Like, all right, everyone's going to go to this kind of watch now and like, you know, prices escalate and, you know, supply and demand goes up and all that kind of stuff. Do you think that the supply and demand on like, you know, the World War II watches effectively has gone up so much now, the fact that people are now after the more obscure ones that they weren't after a few years ago. And I think that that's where the ATPs now sit. I think people are going after them more now because the prices on the dirty dozen watches are astronomical for what they are. Yeah, it makes sense. I mean, I think the, the market for that kind of watch is probably smaller than, you know, mm. a garden variety vintage watch. Somebody yeah. like, you know, I'm, I'm the phenomenon that I think we're all aware of is probably the pole router, right? That's, you know, yeah. something that, you know, went crazy or, uh, mm -hmm you know, the, uh, uh, the Nina rent or whatever. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I could see that happening, but like Greg, I, I give you kudos and props for seeing that Cheers, and for what it is, man. That's a really cool watch. Yeah. I mean, it was really cool for you. You're, you're stoked that like makes yeah. you year, you know, yeah. coming up with that. Yeah. It was one of those where you said, like, I looked at it twice, but that can't be what I think that is. <laughs> and it was one of those where I says, Oh, it is. Oh, okay. Right. Play it cool. Because if I pretend to look too interested, he might, like try and charge me more for it that's um, right play it cool yeah play it cool <laughs> uh, but yeah guys like um if you are ever in the mood for looking at um an accessible vintage world war ii kind of watch i genuinely would tell you to have a look at the atps because um just for a price point for you like in general they are around the 250 to 300 pound mark depending on condition right for a world war ii issued watch Compare that to the equivalent from the Dirty Dozen at the end of the war, those things run now at what, 1,500 to 1,800 pounds. You know what I mean? And it's just like, that's mental. You can basically buy something at what, a sixth of the price, you know, mm. and still say that you've got that, you know, I've got a watch from a war too. You know what I mean? Um, and actually, you know, at 31 millimeters, then they, oh, yes, they wear small but they don't look stupidly small. I thought that they would look stupidly small on my, on, on wrist, but actually it wasn't too bad. So, so yeah. Um, in terms of watch releases for 2021, I think there's one that we need to have a quick chat about because obviously it's been very recent um, and it's very cool and it's in keeping with the podcast. Um, what do you guys think of the Pelagos FXT? Ooh, yeah. So we, we had some thoughts, right, Greg? Mm -hmm. We did. And I'll be, I'll be honest. I, I, I don't want to say I, I turned, but from my initial reaction to then zooming out, reading a little more, understanding more, I've shifted. Mm -hmm. So I can either park that and we'll revisit, or I can tell you what I mean. Mm -hmm. awesome. So 
you know, as Matt and I reacted initially, and this is very much, I feel like a 2021 Instagram, social media driven, you know, uh, digital media frenzy, you, you immediately have reactions, right? Here's stock yeah. photos. Here's a few wrist shots, maybe of a few people that actually got their hands on it. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm going to make a, a snapshot, you know, kind of reaction. And it didn't really resonate with me at first. And I had questions and actually I just, I really posed them to Matt, like, Hey, tell me about the bezel, uh, what's going on with the channel yeah. lugs or whatever you want to call the, you know, the system for, yeah. you know, the fixed spring bars or whatever. Um, uh, what are the design choices here? Is it an issued watch? Cause mm -hmm. I kind of zoomed out and started to think about it, what it was, what it maybe meant, how it came together. I appreciate yeah. it. I, I think it's interesting. Um, you know, I don't know that it does all the things that I would have been looking for maybe in the Pelagos. But, but the point is, I guess that it was designed as I understand designed with input from the MN and, and, and that's what the result was. And it's pretty, pretty freaking cool for that, for that mm. point and purpose, I guess. Um, and it's unique in some ways. And um, so anyway, at first I was like, eh, hard pass. And now I'm like, actually, even if I would want it or not, I can really appreciate what it stands for, what it means, where the design choices came from and yeah. why it might be useful to those guys. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's, I think it was a cool release. Um, there's something on the bezel that annoys me, um, which will, I will mention because now I've seen it, I can't unsee it. Um, is it enough for me not to buy it? Probably actually. Um, but I think what I liked about it was the fact that it wasn't on a black Bay 58. Yeah, I think they surprised everyone because I know, remember, obviously, they've been teasing that MM release for a long time and everyone's like, it's going to be a new iteration of the Black Bay 58 in blue. And I was like, eh, you know, I can see that. So I think it was quite cool that they went for what they what they went for. But I, for me, the thing that I had to pick up on, which I noticed only after the, the obviously, all the media on it, was um, the amount of dashes between the 15 down to the five past is four and all the rest of them are three now i get that you know it's meant to be a count up or countdown bezel whichever one you want to look at it um and that's fine i've not got a problem with that but i just think it's lazy that they did it from the 15 to the five pass when they should have done it from the 20 to the zero you know that's just me i just think it's just a little bit odd um, but then again i also have never had to nav underwater in rebreathers so if someone has had to do that <laughs> and they can tell me why it's the way it is you know there might be a reason you know and i'm all for holding my hand up and saying okay yeah hats off to you but personally i i think it actually throws the the basil symmetry it's symmetrical but you know what i mean i think it just throws that that off for me um but yeah i think it's it's quite cool i would like to try one on because i'm just interested to know how light it feels mainly because i've also tried on the amiga no time to die um on bracelet and on nato and obviously they're incredibly light um and i would actually now say that the fxd is in direct comp competition to the, the no time to die watches so that's interesting i hadn't actually put those two together in that way before yeah. i could see where you're going with that yeah like if i, I just you know if you just boil it back down and you just think military inspired dive watch made of titanium in the luxury space you know what I mean? Similar, big, very big similar price specs. delta though. Huge big price delta. Price, big price delta. Massive. Uh, and it'd be interesting to see where they fall on the grey market and secondhand market in a year. Yeah. You know? So yeah, that's my point on it. That's 
Well, here's where I would, I, and we talked about this, so this is no, you know, um, no surprise, but I really like the watch. I'm glad they make it. I think it's really cool and that it's fit for purpose. And if money was no object, I would definitely have one. I think they really did sacrifice wearability though, for the average person. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and that's where, you know, it, you, you mentioned there's a huge price Delta between the Omega and the, the Tudor, right. But the Omega is, if anything, they made it like even cooler on wrist with that like amazing, you know, kind of, mm -hmm. I, cause I think it's a titanium milanese. It's it is, normal yeah. case architecture. So it's going to work yeah. with any, any aftermarket strap, any, you know, if you want to go with leather or rubber or yep. whatever, you know, unfortunately, I mean, you know why they did it, I guess, just to have it be like a no compromise kind of instrument for tutor, mm -hmm. but for the average punter like me, you know, it's going to be, basically NATO or bust and yeah. the, the tweaks that they made to the case end up being kind of compromises in my mind for normal wearability. Yeah. Um, I will say though, I mean, if you have to have something that is uh, like mill spec where it's going to be instead of welded spring bars, I'm glad they went with the channel. I think that's mm -hmm. a cool idea and a better engineering yeah. solution, but um, yeah, to me, you know, I, I was fortunate enough to be offered one and I passed because it was just one of those where yeah. I just know I won't wear it very much. Yeah. Um, Let but, me play devil's advocate to you for both of you for a second. The fact, and I agree with you hundred percent, Matt, the fact though, that Tudor said, we're going to not play to the bigger, more commercially viable, you know, uh, playbook. And mm -hmm. we're going to go to, like you just said, to this very, very niche thing is sort of applaudable because mm -hmm. we're, especially for the Swiss watch industry, which is so staid and so conservative for them to be like, and, and Tudor sort of has a history of doing this, right? Like, Hey, we're going to do things that are maybe a little niche, maybe a little bit kind of um, not for everybody. I mean, that's cool. I, I, in some ways I can say, Hey, you know, kudos, even if it's not for you, even if it's not, you know, generally accessible, the fact that they do that when most folks don't, in yeah. some ways I can, I can really even give another extra bonus point for that. Yeah. Yeah, I like how they yeah they 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 stepped out in the design side of it, which was quite cool and very unique. Yeah. Um, so yeah, um, so yeah, I think that wraps up twenty twenty one watches, guys. So very quickly, I suppose we'll go on to a combination of Christmas drinks and gift ideas because I know personally, um, I've been busy. I definitely forgot that Christmas is around the corner. Uh, I'm um, feeling the crunch. I'm feeling the crunch. Yeah. 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 Um, so I've got some suggestions, mainly because um, mine are very quick. Um, some of them uh, they're loosely watch related and actually um, drink related, so you'll like them. Um, so, you're, you're right up our alley. Yeah. yeah. So um, I don't know about you guys, but I think hip flasks are really cool. So I've got a hip flask, and I actually got bought. I've had this bought for a while now. Um, I think it's like for a birthday couple of years ago anyway, this is by a company called wingback so in uk um this is a airplane travel friendly hip flask which is quite cool so obviously you can have it fall and take it onto a plane and not have to you know down the contents at customs or throw it away at customs which is always good um but the design's unique because the bottom unscrews and wow. i find that with hip flasks the problem is it's that really small opening and trying to clean them out isn't it is always the drama it's awful um, for this, it's uh, you just unscrew the lid, you unscrew the bottom with effectively anything that can get into those two notches either side because it just acts as you know like a, 
uh, on, on the tension there. And you can unscrew it and just wash it straight through. Love it. So it's a little bit more expensive than your average hip flask because of that. And the fact that it's made in Britain and it's that whole, you know, independent thinking and stuff. I think it engraved because I've got it engraved at the bottom. Um, I think it cost me about a hundred and something pounds posted. Mm-hmm. Um, but in terms of a hip flask, I think it's the coolest one in terms of a unique design. And it's very practical in terms of cleaning it out. So I think um, for a gift for someone who likes whiskey and, you know, or, or generally carrying alcohol, I think it's a really good contender for something that's unique but also quite practical in terms of travel um, as well as obviously the, you know, the hygienic side of it of cleaning them out because I know alcohol obviously by default, you know, doesn't really have bacteria in it, but it's more washing it out. If you're different, putting different alcohols in it after each other. So, yeah. like and that obviously that's really the, cool. Yeah. And the lid doubles up as a shot glass, which is also handy. That is very cool. I, um, I'm, I'm certain no one will ever get that and fill it with Listerine and take it on deployment. <laughs> but I, and I don't know anything about that. I actually, I don't know anything about that. I know people who know things about that. Do you guys want to, do you want to do a round Robin Dan, or do you want to go through yours? Uh, I've got, uh, we'll do a round Robin because I've got, let me quickly check. I've got three more, but they're all very quick. I've got I've got three as well. Cool, and that they're works all different price points. Yeah, same. Cool. Greg, do you want to go next? Sure. I'm going to go with um, books. Mm-hmm. Who can't? Who you know? You can't argue with a good book recommendation around the Christmas or holiday um, season. And I'm going to suggest that folks, um, if you haven't already, pick up uh, Jason Heaton's Depth Charge novel. Uh, really, just a fun, awesome, enjoyable read. Go to his site, depthchargenovel.com and get a, get a signed copy for, you know, $14.99 rather than Amazon. But of course, Amazon's convenient. I understand. But get one from Jason instead. And, uh, it, you know, I don't think I need to go into that much more. I think folks here probably know, you know, what Jason's all yeah. about, have probably heard about the book. But if you haven't had a chance yeah. to read it, pick one up or gift it and uh, can't support a better person and, and enjoy it. It's a really fun read. I'm like five chapters in. So, yeah, I'm looking forward to going on leave and, and finishing it so yeah couldn't ask for anything better than that right on yeah that's a uh, a good book to read with a uh, a glass of rum mm. might even put it in that new flask yeah do it there you go there you go well mine is also a book so my first is um and it's funny there's a jason heaton reference here too so i am picking a uh, a book by a, a guy named Stephen Pressfield. He's a noted historical fiction author. He's primarily mm-hmm. an author from the classical period. So Dan, I know um, if you've ever heard of something called Gates of Fire, you know, that's uh, on the reading list of a lot of like, you know, uh, commanding generals of a lot of yeah. organizations. So that's, I think that's kind of the one he's known for. But mm-hmm. um, the book that I would recommend is something called Killing Rommel. And Dan, this mm-hmm. is right up your street. If you've never heard of this, it's a a very, very interesting story of the the British experience in the Desert War. Yeah. So 1942, 1943. Um, and I recommended this to Jason because you know, he and James are, you know, they kind of like the overlanding and and that sort of thing. And mm-hmm. you know, the the Jeep mods and the the uh, Range Rovers and and stuff like that. And essentially, this is the, the story, Dan, that it, it tells a historical um, 
story through the eyes of a, a fictional persona that he, the author drops into this situation. So it's one of these things that, you know, it's essentially like a, a reading a, a living history kind of a thing. Yeah. And it's basically, you know, I think a lot of people know about uh, SAS in North yep. Africa, but this is um, Long Range Desert Group. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and it, that's it, cool. Yeah. So it's a really, really cool story. And I did hear back, you know, at the beginning of the year, or maybe it was late last year, but I, you know, got a message. I recommended it to Jason. He finally read it. He loved it. Um, and that's, I think, a good recommendation. So yeah, I, I'll, uh, I'll check bonus, it out. though, if you are, if you're busy, get the unabridged audio version. It's read by Alfred Molina, another mm -hmm. Brit, right? Um, his uh, reading and narration is so perfect for this story. So I guarantee you, you'll cool. like it. It will, it will put the hook in you. You so have the Matt, the Matt, the Matt McD guarantee. Yep. Yeah. Nice. I've got a, a fair bit of traveling uh, the first week of leave. So I will get the audio version anyway, just because I'll throw it on when I'm driving. So yeah, I'll check it out, man. That's really cool. Yep. Yep. So what do you have next, Dan? So I've got, I've got, so I've put on here Victoria Knox and I've put Climber. Uh, I actually don't actually know if this is the climbing version, but I was fortunate to be gifted a Victorinox Swiss Army now. Um, and yeah, all right, I've had them as kids, you know, and, and you know, I'm not a, a stranger to, you know, everyday carry kind of tools and stuff like that. But genuinely, I'm really surprised at how often I come to use that. So to the point where it is now just permanently in my uh in my smock which is my military jacket um and i go to work with me all the time and i use it you know opening uh boxes you know general stuff you know trying to sort out my camera kit now you know if, if i need to you know or, or whatever um and for us over in uk because your rules are completely different but obviously the legal carry over here is completely different for stuff like that um so victoria knots is just a fantastic way to have a blade effectively and some tools on you but have them uk carry and i believe as well i've written the reason i wrote the climate isn't necessarily because my model is the climber but the climber one is um a uk carry length blade which is obviously handy for my listeners because obviously like i said for, for your listeners um the carry laws and restrictions are completely different for bladed um objects i love that one you know i i, I forgot how convenient was to have yeah. something on you like that and like you said i had them as a kid uh just the fact that you brought that up is going to make sure i get one you know before the the year end because yeah it's just a great thing to have super convenient yeah oh dead useful i i use it all the time mm -hmm. for sure yeah. for sure well greg what's uh, my next, next for you? my next recommendation is um we have a, a local gosh you want to call it a, an institution but a watch a watch supply shop uh, they do straps, they do parts, they do what everything, anything you can think of. It's called Hovig Supply House. They're in mm -hmm. downtown LA in the in what we call the uh, the jewelry district, and they've got a new strap out called the um, the vegetable tanned calfskin, and uh, it's fifty nine bucks. So it's you know one next step up on on your gift giving level, but it's it's handmade in France. They have four colors. Uh, they're great friends of of not only our pod but also just. I think the Southern California watch collecting community, mm -hmm. um, Natalie is the proprietor and, uh, and it's just a great buy and it's super quality and they'll ship worldwide. And, uh, that's my next recommendation. I think you should go get one. There's four colors, uh, three tones, th three earth tones, some mm -hmm. Brown and some other things. And then a, and a blue, 
and um, they're beautiful straps. So go out and get one, give something to somebody that you like. Nice. And I think a, a strap is always a good way to dress up or dress down a watch uh, and make a, a watch that's been in the collection for a while seem yeah. new again. hundred percent. Yeah. yeah. All right, so this was not planned, but my next recommendation is also something from Hovig's. Um, yeah, you can get it elsewhere, but I would just buy it from Hovig's. But they, so Hovig's Dan is not, you know, just a uh, a place for straps or whatever, but it's a I, what I guess you would call a like a wholesale supply mm-hmm. and, yeah. and distributor for watchmakers and jewelry shops and things like that. People that are doing so, her customers are, you know, the watchmakers at stores, you know, all yeah, over yeah, yeah. this this yeah, area. Yeah. It sounds similar to Cousins in UK. Okay. So yeah, a watch. Yeah. One of the things that I would recommend, um, she has a whole variety of options of uh, watch specific tools and you can get the the set of five flathead screwdrivers, the um, Bergeon kit. Uh, It's 53 bucks from her. And again, shipped worldwide. But this is, if you are ever trying to fart around with, a, a bracelet where you need the very, very small flathead. Mm-hmm. You know, these are the ones that are purpose built for that, you yeah. know, where you're essentially able to, to, you know, rotate the body while the, the head of the thing is rested up in your palm. Um, variety of really, really small sizes and just makes it super easy to deal with those kind of adjustments. And for any yeah. kind of watch geek, I think that's a must have. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I think any like watch tools that you know, right down to spring bar plies is something mm-hmm. that a lot of guys need to start start getting. Mainly because, like you said, you can do your own adjustments and you can fit them yourselves instead of having to pay for someone to do it. Yep. Pun, um, in, pun intended. I need to get spring bar pliers. I need to stop messing yeah. around with the just the, the regular Bergeron. Yeah, I've got yeah, I've got mine off Amazon, but yeah, they're the same. They're, they're really good. Um, yep, and yeah, you can get those from her too. Yeah. So yeah. Um, in fact, my, my, my next one's actually quite similar for watch, watch nerds as well, which is something, again, that I always find handy for photography. Um, and I've actually used it on the, the photography course that I'm on a lot. And some of the other guys have used it as well. Uh, but just a UV torch, you know, obviously we use them for, for loom, looming it up for, you know, photography purposes. But, you know, just a UV torch is always good for a watch nerd to appreciate the loom effectively. And, you know, I've not put a particular brand on there mainly because you can buy them for like seven quid on Amazon, you know, posted next day, you know, they tend to run AAA batteries, you know, really simple, you know, and they're so cheap that it really doesn't matter if you break it, to be honest, you know, you're not gonna, you're not gonna cry over a spilled milk, are you? That reminds me, Matt, I owe you one. I think I told you I had a few extras. Um, and before I forget, Dan, I want to say that your photography has always been very nice, but over the Thank last you. couple <laughs> months, over the last few months has really elevated. And so I think you deserve uh, kudos for that because it's been really fun to watch that progression. Thank you, Greg. I appreciate it. And the only reason it has elevated over the last few months is because I've put myself onto a professional photography course. <laughs> <laughs> hey, no, I'm not saying, I'm not no saying I'm a professional. Yeah, I'm not saying I'm a professional in any way, but I... I will stand by and say that um, sometimes actually having access to better equipment than just your iPhone is is also helpful. You know, I mean, at the end of the day, you know, um, the, the, a, a quote that I'm going to mention from someone mentioned on the photography course is the best camera you have is the one that you have on you. I agree with that. 
but also sometimes if that camera can actually be a camera and not a phone that's even better <laughs> you know so yes but i appreciate it thank you very much for that yeah um, no of course i've i've uh unfortunately been spending way too much time looking at camera gear lately and i'm like oh man the bank account cannot afford this right now um, is, yeah cameras and watches are yeah uh, expensive hobbies aren't they very um my last recommendation uh, for today is uh, cocktail related. So um, the Cocktail Kingdom, which is a <laughs> website based out of New York, but they ship worldwide. They have uh, what you would just call your essential cocktail kit. So <laughs> if you don't have this, I think it would be an easy way to make very simple cocktails. Or, and then, of course, you could elevate if you'd like to. But it's basically everything you need to, to shake up and mix, uh, you know, anything. Uh, it's a 143.99. So again, it's a little, we're going a little up market on, on my other recommendations, but, um, it's got, you know, your, your, your mixing glass, your, your bar spoon, a jigger, a strainer. It's got everything. You could pick it in copper, steel, gold plated, whatever, um, super high quality. And, um, you know, you have that and, and some good ingredients and some ice. That's all you need. So, um, cocktail kingdom, and then, you know, that'll lead us maybe into some cocktail conversation for the holidays after the fact, but a uh, good recommendation to, yeah. for your mixologist uh, or want to be a mixologist. Nice. That's like it. Um, so my final one is for, well, I mean, you can put alcoholic drinks in this as well, which is great. Uh, but obviously it's aimed at non-alcoholic drinks. Um, but I don't know about you guys, but I travel everywhere now with my flask effectively. Um, and um, the one of the main brands that I have uh, for flasks is Hydro Flask. Um, and I, they come in all different sizes, all different kinds of lids on there, uh, which is obviously really good and practical. Um, I've got one which is actually co-branded with a watch company, which is even cooler, obviously. Um, so, but, you know, you can just get them off Amazon or anywhere. You know, I'm sure, I'm sure when I went over to California a couple of years ago, I'm pretty sure they're just on the shelves in, in Walmart. Um, but I picked Hydro Plus specifically mainly because you get different options in sizes, colors, lid tops and all that kind of stuff. Um, but if you do want the one that specifically that I've got, go onto the Elliott Brown website. Um, they've got two different sizes um, with uh, the standard twist lid. Um, but obviously, if you then go onto Amazon, you can then buy the different you know, sports lids and stuff like that as well. So, yeah. Yeah, that's good kit. I um, I know people complain about the prices with Hydro Flask, but they're, you know, that's kind of best in class. And like you said, yeah. there's a lot of different sort of configurations and sizes yeah. and things like that. I My kid works at REI now, which is a big, uh, <laughs> you know, outdoor sporting place yeah. and every, everybody's asking her to you know hook them up with hydro flasks at discount so <laughs> that's a, she's popular she's very popular yeah, yeah she suddenly discovered all these friends <laughs> good yeah final one for you Matt. you know i've got something different this would be logistically maybe a little bit of a lift for some people and it's definitely potentially depending on what you wanted to do with it um potentially more expensive but one thing that i'd recommend you know with the the like the proliferation of of substack as a platform and you know uh youtube and podcasting and things like that and and patreon support is if there is, you know, if you have a significant other or a friend who's into a particular, you know, area or subject matter, if there's something that they listen to, offer to pay for a few months of, you know, a, a Patreon subscription at a high level. I, mm. I, I do something with the Fighter Pilot podcast. Yeah. And um, it gets you a certain level of access with the, the principles in there. Um, if you, for, you know, we all, I think, you know, know about the gray NATO. That's kind of a, yeah. a best in class podcast, right? For watch nerds, they're going to that kind of platform. 
that might be something that you could gift a friend, right? You know, say, Hey, support, Mm -hmm. support these guys. Um, you know, I'm going to buy you a year's worth of access at like, you know, 10 bucks a month or whatever, whatever it is, you know, um, different ones obviously have different options that are, are more or less expensive, but that's just something to consider. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's almost like a magazine, magazine subscription, isn't it, from back in the day? That's, yeah, that's a, a very good way to put it. Yeah, no, yep. I like that. I like that. Um, guys, uh, drinks suggestions for the festive period. So I actually did some Googling, because you'll like this, because obviously I tried to come prepared, despite the fact I don't actually drink it uh, that often. Um, but the, the majority of the ones that I found were your pretty standard ones, which I'm sure you'll probably just, you know, think I'm a bit of a drinking peasant because I'm going to mention stuff like Irish coffees and drinking. Uh, yeah. Peasant. Yeah. Like, uh, Cause I'm just going to mention stuff like Irish coffees and, and, and espresso martinis. But I then sat there and kind of thought, well, how can I tie this back into the military and maybe introduce you guys to something that is different. So I have a weird tradition that I've done since I joined the army on, on Christmas day. And it's actually taken from a historical thing. And that's probably why, I did it because I got introduced to it at basic training. So when I joined the army, I actually went through training over the Christmas period. Despite the fact not being in training, like on the camp over Christmas, they still did it on the final week before we kind of went on Christmas leave. And it is a thing called gunfire. So have you heard of that um, at all? So gunfire is um, effectively a tot of rum in black tea with sugar. doesn't sound that great and it's very to someone you know you have to kind of be of that taste really um and i think i probably do it now more out of uh sentimentality and tradition more than anything else however on christmas morning when my family are having bucks fizz and i'll probably have bucks fizz as well um i'll also make a cup of gunfire so effectively yeah black tea with a, a tot of rum in it and then sugar to your taste um the historical reason for this is that gunfire was um used um effectively in the trenches to keep people warm um and one of the more famous iterations of gunfire in terms of like the british army's uh, traditions was just before the eve of the battle of the Ca- of battle of cambrai for the royal tank regiment so the first main use of of tanks in modern warfare um and it was served by the officers and senior NCOs to the tank crews before they went over the top effectively. So yeah, try try gunfire. So there you go. I'm 100% on board with that. A, because of how you described it and its historical significance. And B, mm. I was looking, I, was, I have some fresh dates at home and, and, and something I came across that was similar to that, but it was a date, you know, kind of a date infused tea cocktail. So mm-hmm. you've already, you already had my attention, but the, the, the historical significance and the backstory behind it is yeah. a slam dunk. Cool. Yeah. Try it. And like I said, I, I've, I, I can honestly say that you have to kind of mess around with which rum that you would want. Um, and I normally go for just dark rum, uh, not spiced rum. Um, but yeah, so that's, that's what I'd have every Christmas morning is I'll have a cup of gunfire. So yeah, let try it and drop me a message. Let me know what you think. I'll do that. Very cool. Very cool. I'll, um, I have, I have something. Can I share it? Yeah, of course. So we've had some friends here in LA. Um, it's called penny pound ice. They are ice proprietors. And so they make mm-hmm. crystal clear, beautiful cubed ice. They make other kinds of, you know, crushed ice and things, things that, you know, if you need large quantities, but also just beautiful crystal clear cubes, they'll deliver. You can pick up 
it's here in Los Angeles. I'm sure other cities have something similar, but they, they sent us over, um, a, a couple bags and they wanted us to, to check it out. So this, this kind of cocktail matchmaker is what we call it on the spirit of time yeah. podcast is, is sponsored by uh, penny pound this week. So we got some fresh, um, persimmons, uh, from a friend. And so I, I figured we had to use them while they were fresh, right? Winter fruit. You try to stay fresh seasonal ingredients when possible. So um, I'm going to suggest basically a persimmon old fashioned. So what I'm suggesting is very simple. The only sort of curveball here is to make what you would essentially call like a puree. So take mm-hmm. two persimmons, uh, half a cup of water, maybe one to two teaspoons of, of brown sugar and just boil it, just reduce it. Take it off the, off the heat, let it cool, put it in a mason jar, whatever. That's your puree. After it cools down, pour two ounces of bourbon, two ounces of, it could be rum, it could be a rum forward uh, cocktail if you like, or even maybe an Añejo tequila, really anything that's got, you know, a little bit of a, you know, a brown base to it. Um, two tablespoons of this puree that we just made Throw in some bitters, could be orange, could be uh, angustifora, uh, could be chocolate bitters, whatever you like. Garnish it with rosemary, cranberry. It's going to look beautiful. It's going to look very holiday approved and uh, it's going to be sort of seasonal. So I think it's a fun riff on an old fashioned. Uh, I'm going to make it this weekend and post it and tag everybody and um, give it a shot. Let me know what you think. Yeah, that sounds cool. Awesome. I, uh, you know, I like anything with uh, rosemary in it, Greg. You do, you do. And it feels very seasonal. Um, mm. and, 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 you know, Dan sent us over, uh, the, the, the run of show. What was this? What was the, the, the terminology to use though? Cause Matt really loved it. It was the, uh, <laughs> the schema maneuver. It's a very <laughs> military, it's a, it's a very military term <laughs> for the schema maneuver. And, uh, and it got me thinking because on my own account too, I've been, I, especially last year, I had more time. I felt like I had more personal time uh, and I, I had a whole series of holiday inspired cocktails. Uh, one was, uh, basically a pumpkin smash. If you had a bunch of leftover pumpkin puree from Thanksgiving, it was a way to use that. Uh, one was like a cranberry margarita. So I'm going to post the whole series. I'm going to repost them because I, I thought they were really fantastic drinks, quite frankly. And I'm going to repost them and tag everybody tag you guys, because, um, it just reminded me that there's really fun, you know, holiday inspired cocktails. And Dan, thanks for you know, kind of motivating me to find a new one for this holiday. Cool. And I'm going to repost the other ones too, for, for this holiday. And, and, you know, if you get a chance to make them, let us know what you think. If you riff yeah. on them, you know, let yeah. us know what that looks like. And we'd love to hear, you know, what it sounds like. Yeah, definitely. So um, before Matt jumps in with his one, just so you're aware, my family occasionally, and it's not Christmas, but it's New Year's, we kind of got into a bit of a cocktail making competition. And it would be, we break the family down into teams effectively. And you go into the kitchen, you'd produce, I think it was like six or, you know, enough for each adult uh, to try one. Um, and then it, we'd effectively have like three or four different cocktails and we would go around and try each one. And then at the, obviously we'd all get pleasantly battered at the end of it, but we'd also then vote which was the winner. So um, <laughs> when you repost these, um, obviously I'll, I'll, I'll use your feed and we'll have a look and, and have them as suggestions maybe for that, that Christmas or festive New Year's party game that my family decided to, to run. There so, could yeah, be a definitely. winner in there, Dan. There could be yeah, a winner. Definitely. I, yeah, I'm not, yeah, definitely. I'm not promising anything, but no, no, no. I'll, I'll, I'll keep it. I'll, 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 I'll break out something new. It'll be good. It'll be good. 
Matt, what, what about yours? Oh, well, I confess, I, I feel bad, but I let Greg do the heavy lifting on oh, this. Did you? He was going <laughs> to um, come correct with the uh, the cocktail juice. Nice. As, as far as, yeah, I mean, in the holiday season, I'm basically about, you know, good uh, uh, dark beers, maybe the yep. occasional like black velvet or something like that. Have you ever had one of those, by the way? That's, uh, that's No, I haven't. That's, that's Guinness and champagne, which sounds terrible, but it, it drinks well. It tastes good. <laughs> Dude, um, I'll tell you what. So guys, on that note, not to cut in Matt, but I mean, one of the ones I intend to, to share with you guys is, uh, is a Guinness inspired cocktail that I made last year, which I thought was really interesting. It was Guinness and Mezcal and, uh, and a few other, you know, actually a cream liqueur, like a tequila mm-hmm. kind of agave based yeah. liqueur. And the Guinness plays much better than I would have ever imagined. And so your point, you know, about Guinness and, and, and champagne, I could see it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah, that's, yeah. That would be my suggestion. But other than that, yeah, I'm, I'm more of a, a holiday beers kind of a guy. Nice. So anyhow, cool. Happy yeah, day. I think that's it, man. That's it, man. So there's no closing notes or no specific closing notes, guys, because obviously we've put in a load of uh, Christmas gift suggestions, some drink suggestions. And obviously we've also spoken about stuff like 14 Peaks and some other stuff in there. So if you don't know any of that, go and check it out you know everything from aj bass his podcast through to 14 peaks and drinking suggestions um and then obviously go and do your last minute christmas shopping guys thank you very much for giving up your time this evening or afternoon over there um to come and record with me it's been great to to host you on my channel um and hopefully maybe in 2022 we can do this again um either on your channel or my channel and we can maybe have an update on uh, how well the uh, festive cocktails went yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's that. been fun. It's it's cool yeah. doing the uh, the transatlantic. So we'd yeah. like to have you back on, or the other way around. You know, go the way. Yeah, you know what I mean. Yeah, we'll we'll do another collab episode in twenty twenty two. Definitely. Let's let, let, let's uh, let's do it. But until then, guys. Obviously, um, I hope you have a great Christmas break uh, and New Year. No doubt, I'll have a message from you at some point over the break as well. Um, but obviously, I know that you know this is a time for family. It's time for you know friends and uh, and kind of winding down from work and all that kind of stuff. So if I if I don't hear from you properly, obviously I look forward to hearing you uh, from you guys in the New Year. Um, but other than that, you know, obviously have a good time and uh, stay safe and enjoy yourself. Absolutely. Happy holidays and cheers. Yeah, cheers, cheers to you, on. Dan. Thanks for having us on. Happy no Christmas. No worries, guys. Happy Christmas. Have a good one. Bye. Take care. We hope you enjoyed the episode. Don't forget to rate us on your podcast platform of choice. It really does help. You can find us on Instagram at Spirit of Time Podcast and contact us at Spirit of Time Podcast at gmail.com. As always, please drink responsibly. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time.